Well, a few years ago, uh, I had the privilege to speak at a uh, Christian camp in Arkansas. I was uh, speaking to the uh, staff, the volunteer uh, workers who worked at the summer camp up there. They, you know, they volunteered their time to uh, minister to a very large group, you know, group after group. And I'm, I'm really grateful for Christians who uh, give themselves to ministry like that, you know, who, who are servants, uh, you know, serving the Lord, serving others. And uh, we, we sang a few songs. I, I spoke. I don't remember what I, what I spoke on, but uh, there was a, a time of giving testimony. And there's this one lady who uh, really impressed me. She gave her testimony. She, she spoke about how she had been saved recently within the last year and uh, you know, how, how much Jesus had made a difference in her, her broken life. And uh, what, what impressed me but also made me sad was, as I listened, I, I heard that you know, she was facing opposition from a number of fronts. Her, her family, her, her family was deriding her for, for uh, receiving Jesus. Her, her friends at school, the friends in this, uh, this small community in, in the Ozarks where she lived. And, uh, you know, they were, they were offended by her faith, and, and they belittled her, they opposed her. Um, but what impressed me about this young lady was uh, that she, she stood strong. Her, her faith, her, her desire in Jesus was, was amazing. You know, even though those around her uh, ridiculed her and, and put her down for, for, her, she, for, for her faith, she stood up for Jesus. And, uh, you know, it would have been a lot easier for her just to back down, to be quiet, to keep her, to keep her uh, Christianity secret, her relationship with Jesus under the covers. But no, she, uh, she spoke out. She spoke out boldly. You know, she, she knew, she said, that, that she could do all things through Christ who strengthened her. You know, she, she could do all things through, through Christ who himself endured opposition. And so, you know, this, this young lady's testimony really serves as a, a good illustration to the principle that Jesus gave his disciples. Uh, in John fifteen twenty. what did Jesus say? He said, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And... Uh, yeah, how many of us face persecution and antagonism for our faith? Uh, we're, we're really blessed to live in a country where we can freely worship, where we can freely come together and, and in Jesus' name and, and we, can, we can speak of Jesus publicly. You know, we, we might be ridiculed, we might be jeered, but I don't think uh, many of us need to worry about uh, having our heads cut off or being put in prison on, on account of being Christ followers. And, yeah, we need to be thankful for that. We really do. But if we're living, if we're living the life of a disciple, a, a Christ follower, we should expect some sort of antagonism, some sort of opposition. And Jesus did, and we told that, uh, that we would be also. And so as we continue our study in, in Mark's gospel account, yeah, we'll see how Jesus encountered opposition. He, here we're in uh, chapter 2, verse 1. We're just in the second chapter, and this is, this is happening also, or already. 
we could see that uh, here, here he is, God in the flesh, come to earth as a servant, bringing the, the kingdom of God into this earth, how even the religious leaders, in fact, especially the Christian, or not the Christian leaders, especially the religious leaders, uh, resisted him. They, uh, they, they resisted his actions. They resisted his teaching. But we also see his lordship as he is opposed. And that's what we're going to look at. There's several instances here. You know, those who follow Jesus can expect opposition, but our, our hope is in the lordship of, of Jesus. You know, if we're going to be his disciples, if we want to be like him, then this is what we can expect, and we need to lean on him. You know, here's, here's what I'd like for you to take from this, this sermon today. Expect opposition, but persist, knowing that Jesus is Lord. Expect opposition, but persist, knowing that Jesus is Lord. Let's look at some areas where Jesus is Lord. First, uh, Jesus is the Lord of forgiveness. Uh, let's, let's read the first 12 verses here. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And as they came, bringing him or they came bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. But they could not even get near him because of the crowd, and they removed the roof above him. And when they'd made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Well, picture the situation here. You know, uh, it, it's hot. There's, there's these hot and sweaty people all, all huddled together, crowded in there to hear Jesus and you know, it's, it's so crowded that nobody can even get in. They can't even approach the door. It's packed out. And so these guys bring their friend, their paralytic friend. They've heard that Jesus is healing people. And they, they can't get close, so they go up to the roof and they, they tear a hole in the roof. You know, perhaps it was a thatched roof. Perhaps it was a, a tiled roof. But, you know, they, they tore into the construction of this roof to make a hole big enough to let this man down on uh, by ropes. And uh, Jesus apparently stopped his teaching. He stopped what he was doing. He saw their faith and said to him, your sins are forgiven. Um, this is surprising for, for a couple reasons. I don't think that his friends nor the paralytic uh, went there 
with this in mind, that his sins were forgiven, but that he'd be healed. And second, you know, there there are people, we would be among them that would say, you know, who, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus who makes this kind of claim that, that he can forgive sins? Now, here's the opposition that Jesus was encountering. You know, these people were saying only God can forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. You know, how many people, how many in here can go to a prison and walk up and down the corridors and say, I know you're a murderer. You've murdered two people, but I'm going to pardon you. Go ahead and go on home. Why not? We don't have that kind of authority. Nor does any of us have the authority to say, okay, I know you've rebelled against God. I know that you are sinning. I know that you're going your own way. Enter into glory. Your sins are forgiven. I can't do that. Nobody in here except for one person can do that, and that's the Lord Jesus. Only God can forgive sins. And notice that uh, they, they weren't they weren't voicing this opposition. They were they were questioning it in their hearts. You know, they were they were hardening their hearts against Jesus. And Jesus perceived this. Listen to his response. He he says right out, "The Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins." And he points out that, you know, it's easy. Anybody can say your sins are forgiven. Anybody can say that. A three-year-old can say that. That's easy. But what is not easy in our eyes would be to say to somebody, here you are, you're in bed, you've been paralyzed all your life, get up and walk. And he did that just to show that he also had the authority to forgive sins. Jesus is the Lord of forgiveness. You know, Jesus is the only one who can, who can truly bring healing, physical healing, spiritual healing. He's the only one who has come to bring shalom, making everything right, restoring us, re- bringing reconciliation. He's the only one who can bring the kingdom of God to earth. He's the only one who can forgive, the only one. And, uh, you know, we'll face opposition saying the same thing, will we not? That Jesus is the only way to the Father. Um, there was, when, when I was uh, living in Montana and, and doing software development, one of my coworkers, his name was Jonathan, he said this, that uh, that's hateful. How, how dare you say that I sin? What, and, and how dare you say that Jesus is, is the only one? You know, there, he said, well, there's many ways to God. Um, you know, the difference between us and, and him is that we're saved by grace. You know, as, as Martin Luther said, we are, we are beggars telling the other beggars where to find bread. We're not better. 
And we need to we need to bring the same dedication to uh, bringing forgiveness, pointing people to the Lord of, of forgiveness, as Jesus had. Also, as as did the uh, the friends of this paralytic. You know, think about the means they went to to bring their friends to Jesus. Let's look at this next. The the Lord is the Lord of redemption. In verse 13, it says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why, why does he eat with uh, tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So this this lake, Jesus is walking near the lake, and this is the same lake where he called uh, these these disciples earlier in, in the last chapter. You know, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. Same lake. And he walks past the, the tax booth. Well, these fishermen, they knew this tax booth. They knew this guy. This guy had extorted money from them. And here Jesus is calling him, this, this tax collector, Levi. And it doesn't say that initially they said anything, but you know they were questioning in their hearts. But the Pharisees and the scribes helped them out. They said, why is Jesus, why is Jesus hanging out with these guys, these tax collectors and, and sinners? And so the disciples went to Jesus and, and brought this brought this to him. You know, Jesus, these are these are not good people. Why why would we why would we want to associate with with these people? You know, they've they've taken our money. They're they're tax collectors, Jesus. You know, why why would we befriend them? Why would we invite them to to follow you. Why would we want to follow you if they're, if he's following you? You know, don't, don't you feel like sometimes, uh, don't we tend to, to think that maybe there are some people who are beyond redemption? I think they were feeling that way towards this, this guy, Levi. Well, how does Jesus respond? He says, those who are well don't need the doctor. Those who are sick do. You know, notice this language of healing. Healing. You know, Jesus is talking here about spiritual healing. You know, this this kind of opposition can can even come from from well-meaning Christians. You know, we might we might find ourselves at times thinking along these lines. But you know, Jesus was a friend to sinners, and so must we be. You know, we we can't isolate ourselves. From the lost, we can't just huddle together and and ignore the the world of the people who need Jesus. You know, in in the Great Commission, Jesus said, "Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples." That that word "go" that means go. (laughs) 
It means leave where you are right now. Get, get out there. Get out there and find the, the lost. Bring them to Jesus. Go and make disciples. It involves leaving our comfort zone. It, it involves us being willing to be seen with sinners. Let me give you an example. There's this, uh, this men's group in Big Fork, Montana. I worked in Big Fork. They met on Saturday mornings. It was a men's group. They called themselves the Dirtbags. And they, they met at a bar on Saturday morning, a bar in Big Fork. Many of these guys who would, who would come by invitation would never set foot in a church, but they received grace from these Christian men who said, I am willing to meet with you in, in your own habitat here. Let's, let's come and meet in this bar and, and talk about Jesus. We can't, we can't witness to people when we avoid them. You know, we need to uh, lead sinners to, to the Lord of redemption. We need to lead people to him so that he can change them, so that he can redeem them. Next, Jesus is, is Lord of change. He's the Lord of change. Uh, verses 18 through 22, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting And people came to him and said, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and 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 a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, new wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. You know, this this, by the way, if, if you read closely, this is the first time that uh, Jesus directly addressed the ones who opposed him. He's, he's discerned opposite, opposition in, in the people's hearts. He's spoken to the disciples, but now he's, he's talking to the opposition. You know, people see the, the Pharisees. They see John's disciples fasting. It's a pretty strong tradition at that time. You know, what's interesting is the Old Testament only uh, commanded one fast, uh, which is found in Leviticus for the Day of Atonement. All, all of the other fasts are voluntary. You know, there's several instances of fasting in the Old Testament, but these are descriptive rather than prescriptive. Uh, for instance, David fasted and prayed for his infant son who who was very sick. You know, at other times, Jews fasted during times of crisis. Remember uh, in, in the book of Esther, all the Jews were, were called to fast when their safety, in fact, their, their very lives were, were in danger. Um, but you know, the Pharisees at the time of Jesus, by the time Jesus came along, the Pharisees had taken it to a new level. They were imposing their own requirements 
not God's. By this time, fasting for the Pharisees was was commanded every twice a week. Twice a week they fasted. Well, here's the opposition. They asked, why? We're fasting. John's disciples are fasting. Why aren't your disciples fasting? Hey, Jesus, look at these super spiritual people. Look what dedication they have. Your followers are slackers. They're, in fact, they're disobedient. They don't follow the laws of the Pharisees. And uh, notice that the disciples of John the Baptist are chiming in here as well. And what was Jesus' response? He, he gave a couple examples here. The first concerned a wedding. What do you do at a wedding? What do you do at the wedding reception? I don't know about you guys, but I eat. You know, um, the, the bride is there, the groom is there, the family is there. It's a time of rejoicing. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of eating. That's what we do. Um, you don't fast at a wedding. Um, now, I was thinking about this. I, I was thinking, you know, when my daughters got married, I could have saved a, a ton of money by saying, we're going to have a, a, a reception fast. Probably would have saved a lot of time, too, because I don't think anybody would have come. Anyway, um, no, Jesus, Jesus says that the bridegroom's here. Why? Why would they fast? The bridegroom's here, and he's, he's here to bring the kingdom of God to earth. It's a time for celebration, but, you know, there will be a time when the bridegroom is taken. Later, later, the disciples will fast. Jesus also talks about sewing new cloth to old cloth. It doesn't work. You sew a, patch, a new patch on an old garment, um, you know, the patch is going to shrink. It's going to pucker everything up, destroy the old garment, perhaps. If you put new wines into old wineskins, he says, the wine is going to ferment. The expansion will cause the wineskin to burst. You just don't do that. You don't put new wine in old wineskins. You put it in new wineskins. Jesus is bringing a, a new order here. He's, he's bringing change, new things. He's saying that the tradition of men, the traditions of men, are just not as important as, as you think they are. Let's, let's not try to build on what Jesus is bringing. Let's not, let's not insist on the old, the, the inferior, man-made framework of tradition. And that's a big temptation, I think, for all of us to lean on our traditions You know, are there things that we do that are traditions that we, we hold to be essential? You know, the, the biggest example I can think of is what's called the, the worship wars, where, where Christians fight about what kind of music we're going to sing, what songs we're going to sing. You know, one person says, well, I, I like the old songs from hundreds of years ago. Another guy says, I like the new songs from 50 or 60 years ago. <laughs> um, you know, I, I've, I've seen this. Probably many of, of you have, have seen this too. And 
churches have split over the music and the songs that that we sing. You know, the Psalms many times say, sing a new song, sing a new song. We, uh, we must not major on the minors. We need to, we need to keep the main thing, the main things. We need to be okay with new things if, as long as they bring glory to God. If we're singing a song, maybe you, you, you don't care for it. Uh, look around you. Are other people worshiping the Lord? You should rejoice in that. We should all rejoice in that. Jesus is the Lord of change. Whatever we do, it says we should do to the glory of God. Well, next we see that Jesus is the, is the Lord of the Sabbath. There, there are two examples of this. Let's, let's look at the first one in verse 23. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were, were saying to him, Look! Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Yeah, that Sabbath was held dearly by the Jews. So the opposition, Jesus says, again, your disciples, look what they're doing now. They're picking grain and eating it on the Sabbath. Uh, you know, they're 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 picking it. They're separating the grain from, from the chaff in their hands and, and they're eating it. Uh, what a horrible thing. You know, they're, they're working on the Sabbath. And, you know, the, the, the Pharisees were concerned about keeping God's law. That's good. That's good. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. But, you know, the problem was that in their zeal for the law, they came up with ever-detailed and, and ever- restricted interpretations of the law. They came up with new laws to build a a hedge around God's laws. They were accusing Jesus' disciples of of breaking God's law, which prohibited harvesting and winnowing on the Sabbath. How did Jesus respond? He said, uh, You guys are missing the point here about the Sabbath. Why did God give us a Sabbath? He gave us a Sabbath so that we could rest. The Sabbath was instituted after the Jews had been delivered from Egypt where they had to work every single day, all day long, seven days a week as slaves. And Jesus, or God said, you know, I want you to take a day of rest. Take a day of rest where you can set your mind on, on me. You know, Jesus pretty much said, you know what? These guys are hungry. They eat. They need to eat. 
They're not winnowing and, and harvesting. They're, you know, what if, what if you walked past a blackberry bush on the Sabbath and picked a couple blackberries and popped them in your mouth? That's hard labor, isn't it? No, you're not working. You're, you're feeding yourself. You're, you're partaking in what God has, has provided. You know, they, Jesus' disciples did not disobey God's law. They disobeyed the Pharisees' interpretation of, of God's law. You know, they're, they're, make, they're making up restrictions that God never intended. You know, Jesus said God created the Sabbath for, for our sake, for our benefit, to give us rest from our work. Not, you know, the Sabbath is for us. This, we are not for the Sabbath. And then Jesus, he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is the Lord, even of the Sabbath. Now, I want to I look at the first six verses of chapter 3, because this is, this is Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, part 2. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger and grieved at the hardness of their hearts and said to, to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. By this time, they were out to get him. They were out to destroy him. They're looking for reasons now to hate Jesus. They're looking for reasons to, to kill him. Um, so here's this guy with, with the withered hand. You know, his, his hand was, was paralyzed. It was immobile. Um, when I taught at the community college in Montana, um, I, had a, I had a student with, with a hand like that. His he couldn't move it. He couldn't even hardly lift his arm, but, you know, his hand was completely useless. And, you know, I, I see I see that guy when I read this. These Pharisees were watching Jesus, waiting for the chance to entrap him. You know, some commentators think that they may even have brought this guy in to try to, Entrap Jesus. Why? Because they they knew he'd have compassion on this guy. You know, and you know, healing somebody is is hard work, isn't it? I think it would be for us, but I don't think it is for Jesus. You know, but Jesus knows their scheme. He calls the man to himself. And before healing him, he calls them out on, on their plan. You know, they're they're working really hard on the Sabbath to uh, to destroy Jesus. <laughs> Jesus' response, this is great. Jesus says, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to cause harm, to save life or to kill? You guys are here to cause harm. You're here to kill. I'm here to do good. Jesus turned their accusation right back on them, and he healed the man. He healed that withered hand. Um, this reminds me of 
something I read. Uh, Richard Feynman was a Jewish uh, physicist. I read his autobiography. And uh, as a scientist, as a, a, a Jewish scientist, many, many times rabbis would come to him for, for his opinion on things. You know, there was new technology always coming around. And this is, this is like in the 40s, I think, that he's talking about. And uh, they, they had this uh, conundrum. They said, is it, is it lawful to use an elevator on the Sabbath? And they had two reasons for asking this question. First of all, it's a lot of work to, to push the button. Okay. Second, there's a prohibition in the law against uh, lighting a fire on the Sabbath. And, well, is electricity fire? You know, spending all their time worrying about these, these trifling matters when they should have their minds on, on the Lord God. How does this apply to us? You know, some some will contend that we need to keep the Sabbath. I I met a, a guy in in Arkansas who came from a Sabbatarian background, and he I, I met with him every week for for several months, and he never could get past the idea that we have to worship on. Saturdays instead of Sundays. Um, I told him we need to worship on Saturdays and Sundays, really. We need to worship every day of the week. But you know, on this on this side of the cross, living by the new covenant, and there's much there's a lot of scripture to support it. Paul says some some people observe days and, and seasons. Some some people concern or some people consider this day to be holy and this day not. And Paul says, just be convinced in your own mind. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. You know, the, the purpose is that we should we should constantly be in worship, praying without ceasing, walking in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, always aware of of God's presence because he's given us his spirit to indwell us if we're his. So here's the challenge. I think we need to look at ourselves. We need to look at our relationships. You know, what, what kind of, op, uh, what kind of op, opposition do we face? You know, if we, if we believe Jesus, we shouldn't be surprised if we, are following him or his disciples. He said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. We shouldn't be surprised. Uh, we, we shouldn't invite opposition and persecution. If somebody's going to be offended, they should be offended by the, the cross of Jesus Christ, not by our obnoxiousness. You know, do we, do we face opposition because we follow Jesus? I don't know, that's, that's for each of us to analyze and look at. If we never have and still are not, uh, maybe, maybe we're isolating ourselves. Maybe we're not getting out among the, the people who don't have Jesus and, and those who need him. You know, Jesus hung out with the tax collectors. He hung out with the sinners. He hung out with prostitutes. He hung out with uh, 
people who, who needed redemption, who needed to have their lives changed. And we should be willing to do the same. No, I'm not saying to go to prostitutes. You know what I mean? You know, or are are we secret Christians? Do we do we hide do we hide our faith? Do we do we hide our light under a bushel basket, which Jesus said don't do? Um, I had a coworker in in the Air Force uh, many years ago, and um, we got on the subject of the Lord, and I was I was very surprised one day to find out that she was a believer. And she goes, oh, well, a person's faith is a very private matter. It's not something we talk about. And um, I, think, I think a lot of Christians see it that way, you know, that their, their faith is a private matter. Well, no, it's not. Our, our faith is a personal matter. It's always a personal matter, but never a private matter. We're Jesus' disciples. If we want to be like him, if we want to do the things that he did, we know we can expect opposition. You know, we shouldn't be surprised. It'll happen. But Jesus is Lord and we can lean on him. We can go to him. We can cast our cares on him because he cares for us. We can rely on his lordship. He'll he'll give us the strength to deal with it. He's he's the overcomer. And we're in him. We're overcomers. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we know that you are just that. You are Lord. You're you're Lord Jesus, be be the Lord of our lives. Be the Lord of this this church. Be the Lord of our our occupations and the Lord of our our thought life. Lord, be the Lord of of each and every day, each and every moment that we live. Lord, that you may be preeminent in all things. So take us, Lord, use us. Use us as consecrated, useful vessels. Mold us, conform us, Lord, to to your image. Uh, Help us to order our priorities. Give us a good sense, Lord, of what are the the first things and help us to, to dwell on those. We know that the first things are to love you with our hearts, our souls, our minds, our strength, and to love each other. Jesus, you said to love each other as, as you have loved us. Lord, we need you for that. And as we go out from this place, Lord, help us to uh, be witnesses to your goodness. Lord, to bring the, the gospel, your gospel, Jesus, to a lost and, and dying world. And we, we pray in your name, Lord, your powerful, wonderful, glorious name. Amen.